0: Welcome to the Sacred Life. This program is an exploration of the deep truths of Christianity, the aims of the Christian life, and the church's need for both tradition and transformation. Brothers David and John Baylor, that's me, approach these questions from an Anabaptist perspective, but our goal is broad. It is to wrestle with God, and our audience is anyone who wants to see the match. Today we discuss baptism as a symbol of death and resurrection in Christ. Because we participate in this symbol, we are transformed We journey toward salvation, and we have a greater connection with the Holy Spirit. The many meanings of baptism come together when we see it as a symbol that has the power to transform. We also discuss baptism not just of the individual, but of the community and the nation, what this means, how it has unfolded in the past, and how it's necessary to redeem the present time. We close with a call to listeners to live in the continual transformation of baptism and to baptize the nations. Thank you for joining us in the Sacred Life. Okay, well, as for baptism, I want to start just by mentioning some um, some different views of baptism, um, and these are, obviously, people have really strong views on baptism. Um, our our tradition is the Anabaptist tradition, and people are, um, like, they're being killed because of their, their views, or rather their practices relating to baptism. Um, and uh, so I, I just want to mention some possibilities here, and I think there's actually, well, uh, before
1: before you go into that, like what occurs to me with that thought, and I think it's important to kind of frame the whole discussion, is like to me in a modern, in a modern setting, and like especially as a younger person learning about this history, like it seems strange to us that this is something they would have killed people about.
0: Well, one thing that's actually really strange about it is that if you look at the Anabaptist perspective on baptism, it seems like like they're uh, like belittling it, like it's not that significant. Yeah. Uh, in terms of like it doesn't have a, a supernatural power to it, it doesn't save you, it doesn't l- lead to salvation. Um, and if you hold to any of the other perspectives on baptism, and then you see what the Anabaptists are saying... Then, then it, again, it just seems like they're they're kind of belittling it, yeah. um, and so yet yet they're, yet they're yet they're going to die for it, right? I mean, right. They're, like so, they're obviously not. Um. Okay, so uh, just for the listener's sake, when I say they're they're downplaying it, um, you have you have one idea of baptism, of course, which would just be that baptism uh, is necessary for salvation. Um, but you also have this idea, which. Um, uh, I guess Quakers would be, like, the extreme example of the other
1: end where baptism, the act itself, is totally unnecessary. Yeah, right. It's only the inward change that matters. That mm-hmm. The ceremony and the symbol doesn't matter. Right. Um, so, like, really, anabaptism
0: um, is neither and both at the same time. Well, so what I want to mention is this other idea, because to me, um, this sounded like, like a magical superstition, uh, this kind of more Catholic view, which would also be held by a lot of different Protestants, but that... Um, that baptism is a sacrament, and as a sacrament, when you do this ritual, then um, then like the grace of God comes to you. Uh, Catholics will say that that the Holy Spirit comes to you on ba- in baptism, but of the other sacraments, they'll they'll have that more general idea of like the grace of God comes to you. Um, and so it sounded like like I said this sort of magical kind of act um, that if you just do it, then, then God will do what you want him to do, which doesn't, I mean, that's, I'm framing it that way kind of unfairly. Um, but that's the way that it struck me when I was, uh, when I was younger and I heard of this idea. Yeah. So, um, I'll just ask you then what's the, uh, what's the Anabaptist perspective on it? Well, so like, like I, like I said, kind of both and neither at the
1: same time. Um, so like, People often uh, would describe Anabaptism as being a non-sacramentalist church or sort of belief system. That's not exactly true. Uh, And I think that's something that's easy to misunderstand. It's easy to misunderstand, like, an Anabaptist criticism
0: of a Catholic way of looking at things. Um, Non-sacramental would be, like, basically, like, there's no magic power in this act. Right. it's also it's it's kind of difficult to pin down
1: precisely an Anabaptist standpoint because there is there's difference in interpretation of the idea. Yeah, that's true. But um, so like a traditional, like old Anabaptist idea, which is something that would be held on to by more of the traditional conservative groups, especially things like Amish and uh, like plain-dressing Mennonite groups, um, that. Uh, there is significance of the in, in the event. Like, not in like this magical way that it uh, bestows God's magic power on you, like I'm being intentionally facetious. Mm-hmm, right. Um, but, uh, like this way, it's not, I, like I, I don't re- really ever hear it t- no. thoroughly articulated, and I kind of suspect that's on purpose just this idea like it's important that you have the ceremony you have the act and the ritual uh, we don't quite understand why and we're not gonna get into that because it's something that's kind of beyond us mm-hmm. um, at the same time like if you're ish like what would be referred to as like the baptism of the heart is a, like an inward conversion that occurs through like the infilling of Christ and the Holy Spirit like that's the true baptism and then the ritual is like an outward sign of the conversion like you're making a public declaration of your faith which is very important to anabaptists this idea of a public confession right like you mentioned like they're willing to die for it like that's that's because that's a central uh a central teaching it's like you have this public confession of faith and it might even it might be martyrdom Mm -hmm. um so like that's what's important to the anabaptist is that you have this inward conversion of the heart and and then you also have a public statement about about yeah you have a public statement and they would say like the the ritual doesn't convey something on you sort of magically i'll Mm -hmm. say but but it's a symbol of something that yeah, is vital important. Yeah, it's a symbol and Christian also law. like if you're not if you if for some reason you don't want to do it, that's probably a sign that there's something seriously wrong. Yeah. that you're, that you're in error.
0: Okay, so this um, this idea of symbol we will come back to and we'll spend a lot of time on that because for for some of these different views of baptism, if they look at someone that says that baptism is a symbol and that it doesn't right. have some uh, power to save you or um, or power to, um, we'll just say, like, uh, invite the Holy Spirit into your life. If it doesn't have that sort of power, then, um, yeah. then that means you're taking a low view of baptism. But I want to come back to that idea of symbol, and, and first just start with what you're saying about public statement. Because on the one hand, like, that also seems kind of, uh, um, like, lackluster. Yeah. If you say, like, this is important because you need to make a public statement about your faith, well, on the one hand, that sounds like, like, let's brag about how righteous we are. Yeah. Um, and then it also sounds like, well, then why would, why would baptism be necessary at all? Why couldn't you just, why couldn't you just tell people? Like, isn't that a better statement? Um, yeah. Uh, so if, if, if it's just this idea of public confession of faith, then uh, to me personally, that sounds like that's sort of a little weak. Like we got to have something more than... We just want to, we just want to, uh, again, like brag about our Christianity or make a statement about it.
1: Yeah. um, And I guess this is a place where like another symbol ties in. First of all, I want to say about symbol. Um, It's my, it's been kind of my experience that, I guess I would say to the modern mind, the word symbol has been weakened extremely. Like when I say a symbol, um, I get the impression from a lot of people using that kind of language that's like, this is just like a representative thing that doesn't really mean any, anything of itself. It's just representing something else. Mm-hmm. And that's not really what symbol means. So like a symbol um, has power to itself, but
0: also power beyond itself, if that makes sense. Um. Well, I'm not sure. I mean, I sort of I, I sort of have my own uh, thoughts on this, which are probably I mean, they're like kind of in line with yours, but I don't know exactly yeah. what you mean by by having that. Well, so like Anabaptist theology historically, like if you go back to the
1: 1500s and 1600s especially, is very, very heavy on symbolism. Mhm. And like I would say in a way that is very medieval in character. Yeah. Um and it's, it's not like this idea that the actions that we're doing are themselves just empty actions that are vessels of what they're symbols The statement of. that you're trying to make. Right. Yeah. It, like, there is some, like, Anabaptism also is in its roots and in its character, um, like, inexorably linked to mysticism.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's like this very mystical idea of symbol, but 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 like rejects the the magical idea of right. of other uh, of other traditions. Now I think um, there's actually a lot of similarity between those two. I mean, I, I point at that just because uh, because there's something funny about um, about rejecting the magical and yet embracing the mystical. Yeah, and so the result of that
1: in Anabaptist tradition is that. Um, you see people like individuals within the tradition fall to the side of that, I guess I would call it that middle ground where you'll have people that tend far more towards the rational view of that statement and you'll have people that tend far more towards the superstitious like mm-hmm. like a pseudo Catholic idea. So like I would characterize like Amish um, an Amish interpretation of that idea as approaching the Catholic sort of yeah view of that well which um, I don't I and, don't present as a criticism like no it's important to point I
0: want to I want also I mean this is almost the same comment that you're making there when you say it's not a criticism um, we're we're kind of coming at this from uh, this Anabaptist angle um, I, I don't I don't consider myself to be like some kind of uh, Anabaptist apologist where it's like I'm trying to present here are the views and the Anabaptist view is the correct view. Ultimately, what I want to get at is the the idea that these different views of baptism um, actually have a lot of similarity that's hard to see at first, but when you yeah. understand what a symbol is and how a symbol works, then then you'll you'll begin to see the overlap between these different ideas. Yeah. So we'll need to get deep dive on on uh, on symbolism. But again, this idea, um, I'm not trying to defend Anabaptist position. Um, I think there there are reasons why it's insightful and why it will yeah. kind of inform other traditions too. Yeah. So so I, I just like to say in
1: regards to that.
0: Well, like, I think some... I think I think the Anabaptist position like. You know, just I already mentioned this idea of like you're just trying to uh, publicly confess your faith. Yeah. I think that's very weak, and um. Um, and I think there are there are a lot of uh, Mennonites, a lot of Anabaptists, who view that as like this is all there is to baptism; is it's just a statement. Yeah,
1: and right. And it's,
0: it's important to make that statement. So let's baptize people. Um, but again, I think. Um, I, I'm I mean I'm here to like criticize the Anabaptist yeah. perspective as much no, and as that I sounds am. Good. To, like, to I wish use
1: it. I wish to present like a criticism of my own tradition. Mm-hmm. Like not in the in the not from the perspective of trying to like delittle to it and tear it, carry it yeah. down, but rather it's like here's where we, it needs propped up. hmm Um it's important to note in that regard that Anabaptist traditional is like it's the church of the martyrs. So these are people like my own interpretation from the study of church history and medieval history is that um, basically we are, like I like to say we're like the last vestige in the west of the medieval church. And so like this is, we're, we're like this outgrowth of this conflict that's occurring in the west in the second millennium um, from like this conflict between scholasticism and rationalism
0: and mysticism, I guess you could say. Okay, so, um, so that's like.
1: Well, before we get too far into that, the reason I'm saying that is because our tradition comes from like this long line of people that are literally dying mm-hmm. for what they believe in, and this goes forward into the 1500s, the time of the Reformation, where, like, I interpret the information I have, especially like the ideas and the, like the, what I see as the underpinning philosophy of what these different groups are saying, is that the the Reformation is sort of happening around the church. And there are elements of the church that are not participating in the politics. Mm-hmm. And the Anabaptists would be an example of that. And I guess I would say that's the case that we lucked out because of geography, more than anything. Yeah. Like, we we're, we're in a place that was, on the one hand, pretty isolated from the mainstream politics going on in the world around it mm-hmm. um, and on the and on the other hand um, well like also like culturally isolated like the common people still to this day holding on to this culture that is just remarkably ancient and uh, at the same time like also having this sort of contact with the broader church that some of the more higher church areas intentionally didn't have so, like, there's evidence in the medieval church in the mountains in Switzerland that there was a surprising level of influence from Greece. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I'm not saying that to credit Anabaptists, and that's an outbranch of Orthodox mysticism. But it appears to me like there must have been some influence
0: there. No, there's uh, no. I mean, you're you're just you're opening up so many different cans of worms that I, <laughs> right. I don't I don't want to get into all these things. Yeah. So my main, there, my, my there is point. a there is a like a, a strong tradition of mysticism that's tied to the the Bernese Oberland. Right. Independent of what anybody has to say about Anabaptists. Right. Um, so so it does come out of a region where there was a strong mystical tradition. Yeah. But um, this is the main reason. And I, and, I, and that's a very much like a. Um, uh, I, I guess you would say, like, low Middle Ages tradition. Yeah.
1: Um, the main reason I, I, I bring this out, like this is in, re, in relation to this idea of public confession, which, as you rightly point out, is kind of kind of a weak idea in modern Anabaptism. But in the past, it's an extraordinarily powerful one because these are the people that are making a dangerous stand by having that sort of public confession. So it's like in the Middle Ages and, and in the Reformation, like in the 1500s, baptism in this sense was to put on martyrdom, oftentimes quite literally. That this was something that was illegal and persecuted by the state mostly mm-hmm. um, with the approval and assistance of the, of, I guess we would call it the high church, the institutional church. So it's like if you're, we'll, we'll just say because it's easier to track, you, let's say you're an Anabaptist in the early 1500s in Bern or in Zurich, Switzerland. Like, the mere fact that you call yourself an
0: Anabaptist is accepting death. Mm-hmm. Which which is what uh, the symbol of baptism is all about. Right. Like, the symbol of baptism is death. Um, we're, we're buried with Christ and raised with him.
1: Yeah, so like this idea in that context of a public confession of your conversion and your faith is an extraordinarily powerful one. Mm-hmm. It's just as we get more and more removed from actual martyrdom it sort of loses its significance which is something like I think the East does rather well at is keeping martyrdom tied to baptism
2: mm-hmm.
1: and like actually keeping martyrdom tied to everything so like even in like an orthodox wedding they're singing hymns to the martyrs
0: yeah okay um, as I said I want to do like kind of a deep dive on on what is a symbol mm-hmm. because um, I think really that's central to um to this idea of baptism like i said if i want to try to unite these different traditions of baptism um then uh then then that's the way to approach it um anabaptists like the phrase an outward sign of an inward grace right and or an outward
1: sign of an inward conversion they might have that as a twist of that yeah
0: right um so that that phrase is a, a medieval phrase Um, Uh that's, uh, Peter Lombard. I mean, that would have been like the 1100s. Um, Peter Lombard, like he, he said the sacraments are, are an outward sign of an, of an inward grace. He said that of the sacraments in general, and then he, he named what the sacraments were and he's kind of, uh, um, like his statements are where we get the list of the seven sacraments. Um, the Catholic church or the church generally um, adopted his ideas right away right. On, on, on the sacraments. But when he said an outward sign of an inward grace, um, he, he didn't just say that here's a way to show people that you have converted, but he was also saying um, that sign um, expresses that grace, but also, now I'm paraphrasing here, I apologize, I don't have the, the direct quote, um, that... That um, sign expresses your inward grace, but it also brings it about. Right. And 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 so now that's where it starts to sound more like the uh, like very old Catholic idea. Right. Um, but I think that's also part of in the nature of of what a symbol is and how a symbol works. Um. A symbol. A symbol does bring about change in you um, you, uh, um, I I guess I want to approach this like just by, by talking about, um, about imagination. Um, if you, if you imagine yourself to be doing something, you get better at that thing that you're imagining that you're doing. Um, if you're, you know, if you're a boxer and you're visualizing boxing, you get better at it. Right. Um, but not just that, like, uh, I actually have this research up on my phone. Well, I guess I'll go ahead and pull this up. I try to be really brief about, about saying this because I don't want to focus too much on the, uh, uh, the research itself. But, um, but you imagine yourself doing something like... You can imagine yourself lifting weights and you get stronger. Right. Um, there was a... Okay. Uh, um, Guang Yui at the Cleveland Clinic had participants uh, do a 12-week study where they did imaginary finger exercises for 12 weeks. Imaginary means they're not moving their fingers, but they're pretending to. They increase their finger strength by 35%. That sounds like a really fun study to participate in. <laughs> yeah, right. i
1: just going to imagine moving my fingers. <laughs>
0: um, and uh, I've, I've got a lot of these listed here, but I'm just going to mention one other one just because, again, I don't want to get bogged down on the research, even though it's really interesting. Um, Aaron Shackle, Lionel... Standing at Bishop's University Had three groups of participants One of them did nothing That was just a control group One of them did uh, like strength training Just lifting weights in a gym um, For uh, three times a week And um, another group Didn't didn't do the weight lifting But they just listened to a CD That guided them through imagining That they were lifting weights mm-hmm. So like every time the second group Was lifting a dumbbell The third group was imagining That they were lifting a dumbbell Okay, the group one that did nothing had no strength gains. The the second group that was in the weight room had 28 percent strength gains. The group that was imagining it had 24 percent strength gains.
1: So the moral of the so, story,
0: kids, is you don't you don't actually have to lift weights. <laughs> no, you just pretend that you're doing it. But like, but what you have there is somebody who's uh, um, who's who's uh like he's he's spiritually engaged in an act. Right. Um, if if you're participating in a symbol, you're spiritually engaged in the act. And like, what's the goal of of baptism? It's like the death of the old self and resurrection of the new self in Christ. Yeah. Uh, if you're if you're part of that symbol, like you're you're acting that out. And when you act that out, that does change you. It does have an impact on you. So like, what fascinates me about like my own
1: Anabaptist conservative Anabaptist tradition is we are not, I guess I would say, rationalistic or scholastic at all in our in our theology. Um, and by that I mean we have all these ideas, like this one, like I'm struggling to define for you the Anabaptist, the actual Anabaptist of teaching. And One of the reasons I'm struggling for that is because we don't actually articulate it in like this sort of logical, rational way Mm -hmm. that you kind of, I'm kind of trying to, I'm kind of forced to in the context of a conversation like this. Yeah. Like that might seem like a criticism, but like it's really not because it's like this intuitive understanding of the symbol and of meaning that's something that doesn't necessarily mean anything to your rational mind. So it's like you can prop it up with things like this studies, like, here's examples in a rational, scientific sense of how this is actually true. But that still doesn't mean as much as, like, your actual understanding of the idea. Mm-hmm. So, like, I have to think in this, like, you, you look at the Old Testament, and I've heard many people, really, I've heard people many times struggle to define, like, especially out of, like, Proverbs and Psalms, you have this idea of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. And how do you draw the lines between those three things? Um, the best way you can defi- you can say the best thing I think you can say about those three things is they're actually unrelated. Um, so, like Jordan Peterson talks about, um, in his experience as a clinical psychologist, there is no connection between wisdom and knowledge, or wisdom and intelligence, as mm-hmm. you could say. Yeah. Um, it's like, this is a guy that actually has like the data. To back up that claim so it's right. not like a wild right i'm just some guy sitting around imagining yeah and things. i mean
0: any, anybody can see that as a criticism of theology that right like, um being able to say present all these rational arguments has nothing to do at all right with, with your faith so it's like there's this temptation for me as
1: i guess uh a more intellectually minded person to try to like, okay, we need to sit down and systematically hammer out the Santa Baptist theology. Mm-hmm. But if I step back and I look, at, I look at how the church has done that in other areas or other, other parts of the church, I start to see, like, no, actually, that's a big mistake. Whenever you do that. So it's like you use the example in a conversation we had one time of uh, Aristotle.
0: Wanting to do that with philosophy, mm-hmm. and w- and the result of that is it fractured Greek philosophy. Yeah. So like like uh, rationalize everything and categorize everything. I mean, it's also like extremely powerful and valuable um, because like uh, well, I mean, you you have to believe that science is valuable, but I mean, I think I think it is valuable. I mean, like the whole scientific mindset isn't possible without this sort of like rational yeah. codifying of everything. Um. Um, so we, and yet, like if that if that becomes your whole uh, your whole approach to the world, then um, then then uh, well, this again we're kind of opening another uh, another can of worms. But if that's your whole approach to the world, this rational codifying categorizing um, that that is, is sort of actually contrary to um, to recognizing meaning and value. Uh, I mean, that's like that's like the one thing that that logic can't give you is like why would you do anything yeah i um, sure this is the best way to accomplish this goal but why do you have that goal well there there are no logical reasons why you have goals right um, there there are like irrational right-brain reasons for those things yeah. there are you might say like there are mystical reasons why you would have a certain goal yeah so I can again go back to
1: Anabaptist history as a good example of this dynamic so like there's two major uh, traditions that combine to form what is like the modern Mennonite Anabaptist tradition There might be a third, but if there was, it got absorbed in, like wholly absorbed into one of the other two rather early on during the Reformation era. Um, so like the two basically the two important ones is the Swiss brethren and the Dutch Mennonites. Um, this, the Dutch would be considerably more Protestant in their character and the Swiss I would define as like being not Protestant at all. So the Swiss Mennonites in the 1500s, um, have, I guess we would call it a synod of the different little scattered groups that existed at that time. I think it was in 1527 when they have this meeting. Mm -hmm. Um, Just to like hammer down, like what is it that we are united on? Um, What is it that we actually believe? And what they came up with, um, I would compare it to the Nicene Creed and the fact that it's exceptionally simple. Yeah. And like, it doesn't define a whole lot and With this very simple theology, they didn't have a single disagreement for the next 150 years. Um, In contrast, the Dutch were exceptional, like they were extremely systematic and logical and rationalistic about their theology and wanted to define everything and categorize everything and spell it out. And they never agreed, like at any point in their history. Mm -hmm. And then when this uh, sort of like, I guess what i would what i would say is there were certain elements within the swiss that were i guess envious of the seemingly smarter approach that the dutch had and wished to adopt that for themselves and this is actually the origin of the amish by the way is adopting a dutch approach to anabaptism and so like what this does they introduce this more spelled out and detailed uh statement of faith and this just immediately causes divisions and it
0: causes like a cycle of disagreement and division that continues to this day. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like... which I mean, I, 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 at some point, I'd like to just really focus on this idea of statements of faith. Yeah. Um, because, like, because that that's what you're doing. Like, you're you're asking somebody to, uh, um, to like make a left brain commitment to certain rational claims. Yeah. Um, but but I don't want to. I don't wanna deal with that right now, but I mean like there there is an issue and you have this, this uh this complex argument on top of argument that doesn't resemble you mentioned the Nicene Creed as a right familiar example. Well yeah, so so it's like I've done this before and sneakily uh,
1: presented the Nicene Creed to people, only translated the word Catholic to universal. Mm-hmm. It's like usually it's just left untranslated. Yeah, right. So it's, it's like the one I believe in the one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. We'll just translate that, the Greek word into what it would Mean in English, I believe in the one holy, universal, and apostolic church. So, like, that's the one thing that might give a Protestant pause in the in the Nicene Creed is just the mere use of the word Catholic. Mm-hmm. Translate the word, there's no problem. Right. So, I'll present this to people, and like, all, all the time, people that look at us like, oh, this is really good. Where did you get this? Did you come up with this? It's like, no, this is the Nicene Creed. Yeah. This right. is the thing that you think you're against. Yeah, but it's like it's extraordinarily simple, and if you would look at this as like the the foundation of the Catholic faith, it's like, well, how? It's just so simple. It's not systematic at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it defines the things that need to be defined, which in the context is like, what is the nature of the Godhead and what is the nature of Christ. Nothing else needs to be defined, and like to to link this back to the the conversation on baptism. Good. <laughs> Um, so, like, this is one thing in my study of church history, so, like, any Christian studying church history, including myself, is going to approach it with a certain bias. So, like, if I'm studying it as an Anabaptist, sort of subconsciously, my view might be to kind of prove and reinforce the legitimacy, historically, of Anabaptist teachings on baptism. And this is something I see done quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And you can actually do that. But the problem is you can actually do that with a Catholic or Orthodox teaching on baptism also. Yeah. So like relating to this to the Nicene Creed, we know quite a lot about the church fathers that were present there. Like there are some pretty important theologians that are attending the Council of Nicaea. One thing we know is that they held what we would see as contradictory views and teachings on the subject of baptism. So there are people present in the Council of Nicaea that teach infant baptism. There are also people, possibly more, that teach adult baptism. You have like people like Origen and other really important church fathers that very clearly teach um, adult baptism mm-hmm. and that you have to go through this uh, this sort of teaching and review process to be baptized um, so like what I see when I look at this is well we look at the example of the early church we actually can't define baptism yeah right and so like here's this council and, and, and where they're they solving didn't, they didn't do it yeah you no know, they didn't
0: do it for us they didn't do it for
1: themselves yeah and the bible itself doesn't do it right um, so it's like here's this council well, as convened to deal with the biggest problems present in the church. They never even discussed the subject of baptism.
0: Yeah, so, like, if you if you look, uh, you know, what do, what does this church say about baptism, and what does this church say about baptism, what they say about it is, well, these people over here, these other people that aren't us, they ignore this verse, and this verse, and this verse. Right. And then you look at, okay, well, now what do those people say about baptism? And they say, oh, those first people that you talk to, they ignore this, and they ignore this, and they ignore this. Right. It's like, okay, so... Uh, obviously, this is a, a like a, an ill-defined issue.
1: Yeah. So, like, um, I think historical context is important. So, you never see Anabaptism arising in the East. And like, I don't think, I don't think it's a good idea if you're a Catholic or a Lutheran or somebody like that to claim that's because it's just a unique heresy that pops up in the West in the fifteen mm-hmm. hundreds. It's like no, I think it never arises in the East because it doesn't have to that like anabaptism i see anabaptism in the west as something that rises up in opposition to the sort of corruption in theology that was present at the time in the west Mm -hmm. it's like it doesn't just arise in switzerland and in holland also arises in england and italy and um i think also places in france like it's something that all across Western Europe at the same time, this idea pops up with people that had no contact with each other. Yeah.
0: Um, and, I mean, you, you mentioned all these different places, but these are all places that are under, like, similar uh, cultural and ecclesiastical influences. Yeah. Um, like, they, it, they're, they're all responding to the same problem. Right. Um, now, uh, is, is the problem... I don't know what your answer to this question um, is. The problem that, uh, and, and I, this, I'm I'm framing it in a way that that doesn't give the typical Anabaptist answer either. Doesn't kind of doesn't allow for it. Um, is uh, is the problem that this uh, this Catholic idea has has devolved into just a magical view of baptism? Um, I think I would say for the for the Anabaptists, the real problem
1: is catholicism stripping away over time the responsibility of the individual mm-hmm. and putting like increasingly putting everything responsible for like for your own personal salvation in the hands of the clergy yeah. and the rituals of the church. So it relates to that what you're saying. So it's like it becomes by the late middle ages the teaching of
0: the church um, now Catholics can correct me. Well, the it, that light. does relate. I mean, yeah. that that was I said what you gave was kind of like the traditional Anabaptist right. perspective on it. But it, it, I guess it relates because um, if if baptism is just a magical thing, then it's it's a magic power that's held by the clergy. Right. Just, yeah. So that's what I was going to say. Like this becomes
1: um, like if you're listening to what the 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 Anabaptists themselves and even like the everyday people in Europe at the time are saying about the doctrine, like. I'm less interested in what the doctrines themselves actually are and more interested in what the perception and practice of them appears to be at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So it appears appears to the people that the Catholic Church is teaching, like you have no responsibility whatsoever for your own salvation, just put yourself in subjection to the priesthood and undergo the sacraments Mm -hmm. and that's how you obtain salvation. Now I know a modern Catholic will object to that idea rather strongly. Yeah. It's like, well, good, I'm glad. Yeah. Um, that, that's not exactly my point. My point is, this is the attitude that people have, whether they were wrong or not. And this is the thing that, I guess, the heretics in the Middle Ages, which then become, in my understanding, the Anabaptists in the 1500s, are objecting to. Right. Um, and it's also, like I'll point out, that's also a criticism of the East still raises against the West that like you're, you're basically taking out personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. Um, and you're making it all about like this sort of mystical, magical process. Right. Um, which again, whether or not that's an accurate criticism is kind of unimportant to the conversation.
0: Yeah. Well, um, just, I said, I wanted to link these different views of baptism together and, uh, I want to touch on that really briefly. So we had this, um, this one idea that says that um, baptism is like this, this sort of a magical um, invocation to God that like gets you the Holy Spirit as a result. Um, and what, what I said in terms of symbol and baptism um, is that baptism is a symbol. Um, and being a symbol, it has transformative power. So when you engage in it, um, you, you actually are, um, killing the old man right. and being resurrected in Christ. And, uh, I mean, that's, that's like, that's almost a magical power. I mean, it's, it's hard to describe that. Uh, but like the weightlifting example that I use is also like, it, it's almost hard to describe that without, <laughs> without deferring to magic because, right. because the idea is so strange, um, but um, but that that's like that's how we by design um, operate. Right. That's how our imagination works, and that's how symbolism works. Yeah. So so is it an act? Uh, you know, I mean, that's like uh, is is baptism some work that if you do this work, then you get the Holy Spirit? Like that? I phrase it that way because that's very objectionable to a Protestant. Um, in a sense, like um, it is it is a work that if you go through it. Um, you are changed on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, you are, you are dedicated to the life of Christ in a way that you weren't dedicated to it before. Um, and and so again, like uh, when when you look at what does it really mean for baptism to be a symbol, then I think it actually looks a lot like this uh, magical, superstitious idea. Right. Well, and and like. Uh, now, yeah. Like.
1: So, like, again, like, this isn't, like, me trying to say, here's why we Anabaptists are right on everything. But, Mm -hmm. like, I I speak from what I know. Um, That, like, we would hold the, like, this, I guess, sorry to Quakers out there, but we would hold the Quaker idea to be pretty abhorrent. Mm -hmm. Like, no, like, there is something, there's obviously something important and valuable and transformative in the act itself right and if you neglect the act you're neglecting something very significant and very yeah important. so
0: so a quaker attitude basically like towards sacraments as well people argue about these things so let's not just e- even do them because we don't want to get into those controversy they're so they're so insignificant
1: yeah and like also like there's i think i i understand that part of the belief is also like the acts of themselves hold no uh no literal significance. Mm-hmm. What's important is the N-word process. They're merely symbols. Right. And like, Which this, is, this is something like I would say, like, no, there's no such thing as merely symbol. Like, symbol mm-hmm. is the best thing you have. Yeah.
0: And and I mean, I guess uh, I, I also would want to say, like, um, as you phrase that, that sounds very similar to the Anabaptist idea and and that I think that there are Anabaptists that hold that idea. Right. And so there's probably also Quakers... Who, uh, um, like, um, although they don't have the tradition, like, they're still, um, they still have a, a, a perspective on things that's different than what you described. Right. Well, so it
1: strikes me so, like, going back to this conversation on, on, like, making an argument as to how Anabaptist ideas on baptism is something that arises in consequence to what's going on in the West at the time. Like, this is, this is
0: an idea that... Oh, can I, can I deal with one other part of my, my mission first? No. <laughs> oh, well, the, the other part, and, and uh, um, actually this is probably beyond the scope of our conversation, but the other idea that I mentioned, different views of baptism, is that, um, okay, so we've dealt with this connection to um, baptism is an act that invites the Holy Spirit into your life. Um, and how that's actually very similar to the, similar to this idea that baptism is a symbol. right. So the other idea that I wanted to deal with was this idea that baptism is necessary for the salvation of your soul. Um, and I guess I'll just ask you, like do, do is there some kind of similarity like um, does does viewing baptism as a symbol answer that concern at all? Um, so like my immediate response to that would be, like, if you'd ask
1: an Anabaptist, a traditional, like, conservative Anabaptist, is baptism necessary for salvation or for the soul, the answer is yes. Um, but then there'll be a number of different ways in which the individual will take it from there. It's like, so, like, it basically would
0: amount okay, to... Okay, so, that. so if it's a symbol, how is it necessary for salvation of the soul? Yeah,
1: well, so what I was going to say is, essentially, the answer beyond that is, but it's... it's, it's in a way that's mysterious, and we don't quite understand where the line is drawn. Mm-hmm. Which I think is probably the best answer I can give.
0: Oh, so we we don't know
1: what where what line is drawn. Um. So like between the sim between the meaning and the act.
2: So mm-hmm. like,
1: is the act literally important? A lot of people will say no, but will say it in a way
0: that they're clearly uncomfortable saying that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so, and when you say like the meaning, the meaning is the, uh, we'll just say the inward baptism, right? Like the transformation that happens within you, putting off the old man and putting on Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, or I should just use the death imagery, the, the death of the old man, right? And the new life in Christ that is necessary. But, um, yeah, so but, like... but the act of baptism, uh, you're not comfortable or the traditional view is not comfortable giving an answer either yeah. way. Yeah. Um now I I wanna kind of add on to that like um it 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 might also in part depend on like what do you mean when you say salvation. Right. And that's and where that, I said that's... this this kind of goes beyond this discussion. We'll deal with salvation, right. uh we'll try to tackle mm-hmm. that. But um if if salvation is um is a process Rather than like just the flipping of a switch, like you, you're not saved. You're not saved. Oh, we just flip the switch. Now you are saved. Um, then, uh, if it's a process, then baptism is a is a part of that process. Right. Like the the transformation that that symbol helps to bring about is a part of that process. All right. Um.
1: I guess I don't really. I could go. I don't. I don't know how to go into that without getting okay, too yeah. deep into this idea of salvation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, we'll we'll
0: we'll try to deal with that.
1: So we'll just leave that as a as a hanger
2: out there. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I I do think I do think there's there's still well I mean you kind of mentioned in your own answer too like there's still a relationship between baptism and salvation. Yeah. I mean you you, you also have the uh, the thief on the cross. You know Jesus saying to the man in in his dying moments, um, today sh- you shall be with me in paradise. Um, so interestingly enough, I think a good thing to listen to
1: that deals with that subject rather well is uh, the Paschal Sermon of uh, John Chrysostom. I don't know if you've ever heard it. Um, so, so I guess it's obviously uh, Paschal Sermon, so it's an Easter sermon we would say in the West. Yeah. Um, and he's talking about this idea, so like Jesus talks about like the servants who show up at this hour or that hour, um, the f- ones who, co- who come to do the do the work at the first hour, at the third hour, and the sixth and the twelfth hour, all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, right. And it's like they each they all have they all have their reward, but it's different. And like he also brings out, and that is like God rewards the work, and all, I forget how he how he phrases it. He rewards the faithful, and he rewards the work. And also has grace to those that, that came. And so like he both gives his reward and, uh, and bestows gifts. Mm-hmm. So it's like there's this idea in this sermon, which he's bringing out of Jesus' parables, that salvation is this thing that you do have it. But then there's this continual work that goes along with it. Mm-hmm. Like, that's this... Uh, like, the, not not to say salvation is of works. Like, that's the dangerous thing whenever you use the word work. Yeah. Um, but, like, there's this idea clearly in Jesus' parables and in his teachings that... Like, salvation is something that once, well, once but, you start out on the path, like, it's a path of effort.
0: And... Yeah, I mean, it like... Like you, Fo- you, following Christ demands everything of you. It does right. not demand nothing.
1: <laughs> and so like a traditional like ancient Christian idea of this interpretation of this idea of increasing reward is just this idea that like your salvation is something that you're attaining towards continually. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're redeemed and sanctified through baptism. Like this delivers you from hell. And then throughout your life, throughout the process, you're drawing near the kingdom of heaven. So, like, for them and for me also, um, this idea of salvation, and this idea of greater, your, your reward is greater in heaven, is something that is, like, presently true and eternally true, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it's like you can, you can look at it in this, this standpoint as, as you continue to go through the work, like, your life is continually transformed. Um, so it's like the new birth is something that is a continual process. You're, you're not just like, I'm saved. I go through the act of baptism or like a more like evangelical Protestant version of that. I say the sinner's prayer and make my, con- my, my confession of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, I'm saved and sanctified and holy. It's like night and day switch. It's like, there's a degree to which that is clearly true, but there's also a degree to which like, that's not good enough. Yeah.
0: Right. Um, yeah, and, and uh, again, we'll get into into that more in right. the future. But it, I mean, when you mentioned the uh, um, the passage and the sermon from Dome, then um, like part of the answer is um, those people who come late in the day, um, they still have a reward. Right. But like, but that that message is not about well, therefore, just just uh, come to Christ on your deathbed. You know, like right. because you know, then you can have more fun while you're living or something like that. Um, I mean, it's still like... Like it's at the same time, like, how
1: tragic is it that you waited until the 11th hour? <laughs> yeah, right,
0: right. So, so, um, you, you must be on the journey. I mean, like, as, as a Christian, you must be on the journey, and part of the journey is baptism. Right. Um, so, like, I really like this idea. It's present in Orthodoxy. I would say it's
1: present in Anabaptism as well, though oh, perhaps oh, I, I
0: just can I, I I want to wrap that up because I feel like okay. I like I kind of misstated. Um, you are on the journey, baptism is part of that journey. Um, not everyone who's on the, that journey will do that part of it. Um, so yeah, like I said, this is it's very clearly
1: articulated in orthodoxy. And I would say it exists in Anabaptism, but not as thoroughly articulated. Um but this idea that baptism is actually a continual process. Mm-hmm. It's not a one time event.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, both of our traditions would hold to the idea, as does Paul in the scripture, that being rebaptized, like literally rebaptized, is abhorrent. Like, you don't, every time you slip and fall into sin, then come back and are rebaptized. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, there's this idea that baptism is something that is renewed. There's this. Uh, there's a symbol of baptism that on the one hand is the symbol of the moment of conversion, but then is also a symbol of the convert of the continual conversion that takes place from that point forward. So it's like you have this idea in the New Testament that like your baptism is renewed um, in this sort of figurative sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, Orthodox, very clearly and purposefully tie baptism and martyrdom together, yeah, and like you'll see this in the language, like traditional Christian language even in the West, um how like you know you're baptized by fire, mm-hmm. um, this idea like you've got your uh, you've got your legitimacy through struggle.
0: Um, and, like that's a Christian symbol. Mm-hmm. It's overtly a Christian you know symbol, I, purposely I, a Christian I, symbol. I see it like uh... Um, I mean, there's there's something about like this, uh, like I don't know, pampered Christian, um, that is just like unsettling to me. Yeah. Um, to be around people who who have no experience of struggle, uh, and I'm, I'm like I'm just kind of like putting my finger on like why is it there that there are these people that seem like like they've had a good life. I mean, like you know, older people, and they they seem like you know they're they're happy, they're kind of pristine. Um, and, and there's something that, like, that, that bugs me about them at the same time. And, and I say this, like, I, I have a, uh, like a very generous attitude toward elderly people. I've, I, you know, I was a nursing home musician performing for residents in nursing home. This isn't something against elderly people that I'm talking about, but it's a, it's a type of like pristine Christian, um, elderly person. And I think there are like these, these kind of pampered Christians that, um, that have avoided the struggle. And not only does that mean like they didn't have a difficult life, like they, were, they had all the money that they needed and that's why they're pampered, but it's also like, well, but you could have been wrestling with God. Um, and, and there's like, I don't know, in, in an elderly person that, that like I see no signs of struggle in them, um, I, I, just, I don't have the same kind of respect for them right. that I have for somebody that I do see signs of struggle in them. Well, it's like, I heard somebody recently
1: just talking about like the patriarchs in the Old Testament and how you want to like Abraham more than you like Jacob.
2: hmm
1: Um, because like Abraham, um, was a better person for most of his life yeah. <laughs> than Jacob was. But it's like, well, you're supposed to like Abraham more for one thing. But you're also supposed to realize that you are supposed to be Jacob and not Abraham. Mm-hmm. Like Abraham is is like the the patriarch, patriarchal, like the father archetype. Whereas Jacob is like Jacob is you. And the reason you don't like Jacob as well is because you, at some level you recognize that fact. Mm-hmm. It's like you're supposed to be, just like,
0: in the, locked in this mortal struggle against your your own self. Okay, so I mean Jacob, like he's he's tricking people. He's got these like all kinds of family issues right with his with his uh uh wife and uh yeah and his <laughs> sons turn out to be
1: monsters and uh plot to murder his favorite son mm-hmm. and then end up selling him in, into slavery instead yeah um, um and, like they, so they like, like, like a city. really
0: a really dysfunctional family <laughs> right. um because he was a
1: dysfunctional person right but um, then like at the end of his life he and his whole family are redeemed Mm-hmm
0: but and and but you you mentioned him in this context specifically because he struggles with god he wrestles with god um and and that's like that's why such a such an awful person can be such a a a good person or such a redeemed person
1: yeah and like i'm increasingly of the standpoint of like it's it's the people who struggle against the reality of themselves that are the real good people Mm -hmm. not the people that we think of as good people yeah um I wanted to get back uh, to this idea of the public confession. Um,
0: okay, because I was I was dismissive of it before. right. So uh, well,
1: and it, it'll it'll tie into what we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Also, how uh, so like this idea of baptism being something that's renewed, and I mentioned the idea of baptism by fire. So like the Anabaptists in the 16th century have this image. Which is also one that I found, like, the first Christians have this exact same image, that there are two baptisms. There's the baptism by water, and then there's the baptism by fire. And when they're referring to the baptism by water, it's the sacrament, the ritual that you go through. Mm-hmm. And then the second baptism is martyrdom. So it's like they recognize symbolically that baptism and martyrdom are the same thing. Yeah. Um, and like I mentioned, the Orthodox tie martyrdom into everything. Um, like to the extent of even having the martyr hymns in their weddings. It's like you're putting on this death of self continually, and it's connected inseparably from the image of baptism.
0: It's like when you're putting on baptism, you're putting on death. Okay, and you're also, I mean, I I mentioned like visualization and imagination. I'm going to go back and and refer to that in this context. Well, let me me say this first. But this is the same idea, like... You, you have you know the boxer that visualizes the fight before the fight. You keep like, not letting me get <laughs> to the actual point. <laughs> but no, th- I, this is the same point that you're making though. Um, baptism is is like um, it's it's like that kind of experience. Like it is it is the fight. It's a it's a like non-dangerous version of the fight. Yeah. But it's something that prepares you for it. Like like that pattern is now part of who you are because you've engaged in baptism. You can now engage in that pattern. You know yeah. through martyrdom through persecution
1: right so anyway like i kind of said this earlier that for the anabaptist and for the medieval heretics um you know using the word heretics like i don't i don't literally think of them as heretics this is what they're labeled as traditionally mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. the heretics so you know what i'm you know who i'm talking about people like the the waldensians and all of these other sects, other than the ones that were like clearly heretics like the cathars mm-hmm. um well, although we don't know <laughs> Well, we, we know, know we know quite a few of the Cathars were genuine, yeah, we, uh, Gnostics.
0: Yeah. Um, we don't, we're, probably most of them weren't. We yeah, we, we know a lot about uh, what their enemies said they believed. Yeah, we do have a few records from
1: them they themselves and people that left them mm-hmm. to know that in in South France there were actual Gnostics. But then the term just kind of became like a slander. Yeah. in the middle ages for any sort of heretic. Mm-hmm. So like when you say Cathar or Waldensians, after the initial confrontation, it's not actually clear who you're talking about. Yeah. It's just like we're just going to label these persons, these people with this label um, because we need to call them something for one mm-hmm. thing. Um, anyway, I'm getting distracted. <laughs> like so, I, I kind of mentioned this earlier. So like that's part of what ties this, uh, this idea of the public confession. Um, you know, like actually doing this publicly. So like for some of the An- Anabaptist martyrs, they knew they knew when they had themselves baptized that the result of that was going to be they died. Mm-hmm. Literally died. Mm-hmm. Um, so like it's a big deal for them. And we, we try to retain that in our ceremonies of baptism, this connection to the martyrs in this connection to martyrdom, mm-hmm. but like it's kind of hard because, we're, as, as we were saying, um, Anabaptism arises as a response to the errors of the church that existed at the time, and as we get further and further separated from that historical situation, um, it gets harder to see the significance of our traditions.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's all, harder to define yourself as a church of martyrs
1: right. as well. Yeah, when you're not being actually martyred.
0: Yeah, and, and like your people, when when they moved to America, were not being martyred.
1: Yeah, so we do have like this, this sense in Anabaptist tradition that there's something wrong with the fact that we're not being martyrs. Mm-hmm. And it makes us uncomfortable. It makes us suspect that we've actually become lax. Yeah. Um, that, you know, martyrdom is so tied to all of our ideas... Like, it's less clear
0: to the modern Anabaptists that it is. Well, like we've to, lost to step a lot away these... from Anabaptists and, and make the same point, like, if if you try to do something good, you will be persecuted. Yeah. And, and it, I mean, I'm not talking about, like, for a Christian. I'm talking about, like, if you try to start a business in town, then everybody in town has some idea of how you're—not everybody, but, like, masses of people have some idea of how you're doing everything wrong, and you should have done it this way, and somebody— uh, back before your time, ran a business that was similar, and he did it in this way. Like you're, you're going to be under attack, and and like it's like the more benevolent the thing is that you're trying to do, the more you'll be attacked. So well, I started with the example of a business, but like if you're, a, um, I mean, I I have in mind um, uh, a friend of mine who has a, a music venue and and like production uh, house um, that I'm very involved with, and uh, like the guy has lots of enemies. I mean, he he has. Um, he has issues that exacerbate conflict to some extent, but um, but like I look at him and I see what, if you try to do something good, people will attack you. Yeah, um, which is very so, much, very much true. Um, right. So if, I mean, if you're if you're a Christian, like there is something to that. Like if if I'm not um, now, I don't want to get carried away with this like sort of martyrdom complex, but like uh, if if I'm not running into resistance then am I am I fighting for the truth? Right. So
1: it's important to point out in that context what the word martyr means. That in Greek, it literally means witness. Um, so, like, you have this idea. So I'll point out, like, for the sake of this conversation, it's this modern idea of evangelism to me is kind of abhorrent. Uh, maybe abhorrent is too strong a word, but I really dislike it. And one reason I really dislike it is because it's unprecedented in the history of the church. Mm-hmm. So when the early Christians are converting the world to Christianity, they're not doing this by going and passing out tracts and preaching on the street corners and telling people how, how good Jesus has been to them mm-hmm. and all of these things that we would tie to the idea of evangelization today. What they're doing is they're going out into the world and doing good works and being witnesses to the gospel. Mm-hmm. Like, And that doesn't mean they are saying all the right things and trying to convert people cuz like they're not they're not overtly trying to convert people what they're trying to do is speak the truth and be witnesses of the truth and be witnesses
2: mm-hmm.
0: of the gospel and like live out their baptism in a radical way so like this uh you know like i mean kind of come to jesus talk of like uh um like trying to get to the point where you can have a conversation with somebody that brings them to Christ. Well, so, yeah, so it's like, it's interesting. Look at Paul's
1: discussion he has with what, I can't remember their names, the the governors in Judea and Galilee. Um, Was it Felix and Festus or something like that? I'm not sure. I can't remember their names. Festus is one of them. Um, And it's like, you know, like, he goes there and he tells them the story. But he doesn't tell them to convert. Mm-hmm. And one of them responds with like, you know, you have almost persuaded me with your message to be a Christian. But like basically the point he makes is like, it's, it's too inconvenient for me. Yeah. And that's basically the end of it. Mm-hmm. So it's like you look at that like, like this is what evangelization There's is. no, no kind of emotional pressure. Right. No pressure at all. Like, like he just like, like you I'm have here to, make to a tell decision. you the truth. What I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you the truth. Oh,
0: right. And and the thing you're criticism, criticizing is a very American right um, idea of, of evangelism. Now, one thing that Although I,
1: I do think it actually originates in like nineteenth century England.
0: Um, could be. I mean, like I, I I think it also ties a lot to the Second Great Awakening. Yeah. Um, but, but I uh, think
1: that also itself stems
0: from well, it probably does have things coming over from earlier England. roots. Um, that's kind of important. But uh, anyway, uh, uh, one other issue with with uh, like. A popular view of evangelism is this view that the purpose of the church is to evangelize people, um, and and to me it seems like that's not very well thought through because yeah. like okay if you evangelize them if you evangelize them then they convert to Christianity and then what do they do once they're Christians well they go and evangelize more people it's like uh, wait that's the whole reason why we evangelize them is just so that they can evangelize like right like <laughs> there, no like there I has would to say... be
1: something else rather the purpose of the church is to be witnesses to the truth which has the effect of evangelizing. people. Yeah. Um, now now what
0: is what is what does it mean when you say witness? Um well so like for one it, thing I, once I again ask because because witness can be like I am witnessing the truth by being in the church and in the presence of God. Yeah and that's and, part and it of could it. also mean like I am, you know, being a witness to other people. Well, so like, like
1: there it, it's it's no like again, it's no mere coincidence that they choose the word mit- witness to refer to the people that are, are executed and killed mm-hmm. for the faith. Mm-hmm. So it's like going back to what you're saying, to be a witness to the truth and to the gospel to the early Christians means to go out into the world and do the right things. Yeah. Do good things and make yourself an enemy of evil in the process. Mm-hmm. Like be willing
0: to be willing to die for the sake of doing and saying what is correct. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think central to the mission of the church is is the, the purpose of the church. I should say, because mission is that evangel- yeah. ev- evangelistic word. Evangelistic word. And the the purpose, uh, a, a major purpose is um, worship the Lord and the beauty of holiness. Right. But like, if you come into into the presence of God and you worship God, then um, it's uh, it's again, it's like it's an act that's transformative of you. Yeah. And so like the the natural response. Is you go out into the world and you be a good person. Like you don't have to, uh, um, you don't have to talk yourself into ways to be a good person. You are transformed by by worshiping uh, the Almighty God.
1: Yes, well, which is the ancient Christian practice. Um, so like you see this also. Well, so first of all, before I want before I pat my own back and say <laughs> what the Anabaptists did, I'll, I'll switch gears for a little bit and say like what the Orthodox do because I also am a rather big fan of the Orthodox Um, that so like I I see a lot of things of people talking about how successful evangelistic Christianity is in Syria right now and all the thousands that are being converted there and like viewing this as like this great movement that is like proof of the legitimacy of, of their Christianity And like this great things that we're doing by going out there and witnessing one thing they don't know what they're doing because they're getting those people killed, which isn't a bad thing necessarily. But like, just be aware of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But actually, the most successful evangelistic campaign right now in the world is the Orthodox Church, possibly the Orthodox Church in America. But I would say the Orthodox Church, like especially the Russian Orthodox Church more broadly. Although so,
0: the, the Amish are faster growing, and they they okay. don't believe in evangelism. Well, <laughs> they're they're not e- they're they're not, <laughs> they're not winning <laughs> converts. They're either. not winning converts. They just have uh, lots of children. Yeah. Um, well, but, I, I should sometimes they're the largest, the fastest growing group. Not all. the Yeah. Kind
1: of. So, uh, so like what the Orthodox do in evangelization and witness is exactly what you're describing. They go and build a church and and perform the liturgy and be witnesses of Christ in the community. Mm -hmm. And that's it. They don't pass out tracts. They don't uh, hold revival meetings. They don't preach on the street corners. Like they don't, they forbid, like I don't know if they actually forbid, but they just, they don't do those things. Mm -hmm. Like they like, no, like the way we, we evangelize a country is by going and building a church and praising and being witnesses to God. Yeah. And it's like, there must be something. Like, in, on the one hand, like, it doesn't logically make sense that it works that way, mm-hmm. but it appears to. Mm-hmm. So, like, um, Russia, the country of Russia, since the Soviet Union, I don't know if these numbers are exactly right, but I think it's something like, since the fall of the Soviet Union, like, the uh, the amount of people in Russia that are committed Christians has gone from something like 20% at the fall of communism to over 70% today. Um, so, like, just the church within Russia itself is the fastest-growing church in in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if that's exactly true, but it's awful close. Yeah. Like, this is just an incredible growth. Yeah. Um, like, some of that can be uh, it can be attributed to like we've experienced. Secularism and atheism and humanism, and its results for 75 years, and we're tired of it. Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
2: like, well, that I your, mean, like that
0: can't be underestimated. I, I think I think we're we're coming to that point in America. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, like we're we we're, we're doing this talk partly in response to the Jordan Peterson phenomenon. Right. Um, but there there are a lot of reasons why he could be called a phenomenon. But like the the big one is that he's he's renewing interest in Christianity among people who were, uh, atheists. Yeah, but I think he himself would recognize, like, he's not
1: responsible for it. Right. He's just... Right. He's just become a central figure because he's saying the things that... Because
0: people are already tired. Right. Like, people are already recognizing we've run into a dead end.
1: Yeah, and they're already looking for what he's saying.
0: Yeah, right. Uh, even though,
1: like, he wouldn't consider himself to be a Christian. Yeah. He's giving, like, what is essentially a Christian message. Mm -hmm. And he would admit that. Um... But like even like in the context of the Middle East, from my own research, like it's kind of hard to find, but it still suggests like once again the Orthodox are actually being more successful than the Protestants.
0: Um, you know, one thing, I mean, I I don't want to be too hard on uh, evangelicals, uh, but but I think if you have a church that that places evangelism as the the ultimate number one purpose of the church, I think what that church is going to do is it's going to to win converts from other denominations because um, it a- at least offers people a purpose in life well, and and then in the next generation like those people's kids are, are going to leave the church because the purpose that uh, that it offers is ultimately like a pyramid scheme <laughs> like just a just a, a kind of circle that doesn't go anywhere okay so i want to look this up so so, so the evangelical church is growing as yeah. well very it's it's very successful but i i i just uh um, I'm not optimistic that that growth will endure uh, generations. Yeah, well, that's why I pointed out this thing, like, realize what you're doing is uh, and, and the, getting these people killed. You, you mentioned the Orthodox Church. Uh, obviously, like, what they're doing is a long-term strategy because right. um, they've, they've, they've endured a long, long time. Yeah. So I wanted to, like, this, this will actually
1: segue, I guess, what we're saying now into something else I think we wanted to talk about on the context of, or on the subject of baptism. Um, so, like, there's this idea that I'd say the Orthodox and the Protestants will interpret it in radically different way, which is what we would call the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. It's like what Jesus, his commandment, he gives to his apostle before he ascends into heaven mm-hmm. after his resurrection. So I'll just go ahead and read the verse just so I quote it correctly. It's, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Um, there's a little more to it than that, but that's the important part right, in the context right. of this conversation. Yeah. Um, So it's like an evangelical Protestant will take that to mean you should be going forth and and actively trying to convert people. Whereas the Orthodox will look more at the nation's part of that. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, what you're doing is you're going into the culture and you're baptizing the culture. Like you're converting the whole culture. Right. You're you're setting yourselves up for the long haul. You're not going and pulling individuals out of the culture Mm -hmm. and setting them at odds with their culture like what you're doing, like that's part, that's a small part of the overall process. Like it's something that necessarily must happen. Mm-hmm. But, like but it's not, not the goal. Yeah, that's not the goal. Like the goal is, so it's like, again, look at the, look at this look at the example of the early church. The early church clearly does that, pulls individuals out and puts them mm-hmm. at odds with Roman culture and gets them killed in the process. Mm-hmm. But the overall goal is to baptize the culture. Mm-hmm. And they do it. it yeah, it and takes it, it, 300 years, but they but do it, it. But
0: it's still like, like shocking that <laughs> right. that it happens at all. I mean, it, yeah. it's it's miraculous that it happens. Well,
1: like it's something, like I say, it's something that's important to point out that it's easier. It's easy for us, 2,000 years later, to look at the first to third
0: century as being a short period of time. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's 300 years. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, when we look at le- other other uh, cultures that Christianity came in contact with throughout Europe, I mean, there were like um, massive wide like people were becoming Christians so fast that it's almost it, it's almost pointless to talk about it on an individual level, right? Well, <laughs> um, because yeah, because so... whole cultures um, of of like uh, you know Germans and Anglo Saxons um, uh, like. I mean, it's it's like this overnight conversion. I mean, like it's it's kind of this mystery for a lot of people of how how did Christianity take root in these places so quickly? Yeah, and they're like it's something
1: that Protestants struggle to deal with: is how do these uh, how do these missionaries go to the Slavs or to the Germans and baptize, literally baptize entire nations? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Um, it's like the only response I can see them coming up with is just to criticize them, and it's like, oh, they're just giving them a cheap Christianity. But they didn't really baptize them into true faith. It's like, man, I don't know. Like, actually look at things.
0: It's like, they sure did baptize them into true faith. Yeah. Um, well, it's also, it's, it, it's sort of irrelevant to raise that criticism because that's, you know, that's their Christianity. I mean, if you're a Protestant yeah. and you're making that complaint, like, your Protestantism probably descends from those, those yeah. very same people. Right. It's like, we ourselves,
1: as Swiss people, Descend from a certain missionary who did exactly that. Mm-hmm. Goes and like there's a number of legends about him slaying dragons. Yeah, um, you know goes and slays the dragon, which is it's just something of symbolic meaning, um, less than it is like literal historical fact. Yeah. Um, but like baptizes an entire nation of people during the span of his lifetime. Mm-hmm. Like faces bitter opposition at first. And lives as a hermit in a cave yeah
0: yeah and, I mean Boniface in in uh, Catholic tradition is like this guy that that baptizes Germany basically
1: right yeah and what I'm talking about is uh, they'd call him Saint Beatus I think there's more than one Saint Beatus yeah yeah um, but he yeah, would be you like know the, another thought the, on the pivotal figure of the conversion of the Swiss people.
0: Another thought um, that's been on my mind a couple of times. that's related to this idea of of baptism is not just the individual. Um, is um, like just the, the effect of of witnessing a baptism. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm like um, I'm not like a a sentimental kind of person. Um, I find a baptism service to be very moving. Yeah, Um, because I recognize in it like here's here's a person who um, like, uh, I mean, in in a way, it's like this almost kind of like profound, like you're standing above the thing and looking at it like from this perspective of of, uh, here's this child. And and I know something that this child doesn't know. I know. I know that this decision that he's made will change the whole course of his life. Um, And I mean, he sort of feels that, but he feels it in like this in the moment kind of a way. Um, yeah, but, but anyways, I find it very moving to, uh, again, to witness it. And, um, well, yeah, it's, it's like, it's like people like that it... in that way, it's like the baptism is something that that individual participates, but like me watching it, um, I, I participate in it as well. Like I feel the, um, the importance of the, uh, the ongoing baptism or perpetual baptism, whatever the phrase was you were using earlier. Um, like I, I feel this this also, like, celebration for this person and this sense of, like, I know what you're doing, but also this sense of, um, this is what I'm doing too.
1: So, it, it occurs to me, so, like, once again, you you point out Peter Lombard originates this statement of, like, an outward sign of an inward grace,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which would be, like, a big, a big statement that, like, Anabaptists and also Protestants would use when right. talking about baptism. Mm-hmm. Like, and, like, it, it's just kind of ironic to me that, uh, The guy that comes up with that statement is like basically the creator of catholic sacramentalism Mm -hmm. and you could possibly also be considered the founder of scholasticism yeah um that's
0: like yeah and and yeah i mean that's like he's captured something that the anabaptists and the protestants but so like the reason i bring that up is like even the people that say that it's just
1: an outward symbol that doesn't have any power of its own at some sense, subconsciously maybe, recognize that they don't actually believe that. So, like you're talking about, like there's like something significant. Yeah, there, there's a great irony in that. Yeah, there? right. That's why I bring that up. Like here's the great irony: mm-hmm. is that the statement that they use to uh,
0: um, to dismiss sacramentalism yeah, is actually is from the foundation the <laughs> of. Yeah, not the foundation of sacramentalism, but uh, a, a, an important point in its history. Anyways. Right. Um, but it's like, yeah, like you somehow like you
1: recognize and you make this connection with the, with the meaning and the significance of the event. Even if you think that you believe in this idea, this doctrine, Mm -hmm. that it's just like an empty symbol. Yeah. Like you don't actually believe that. Like, which is something, by the way, like will come up a lot in our conversations. That's something I'm really big on is the idea that you don't believe the things that you think you believe. Yeah. And like examining that idea in myself and in others, like what, what is it that I actually believe? Because as I as I encounter reality and pay attention to the way I respond to it, it becomes clear to me that I don't believe what I think I believe.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like I put on like this outward layer of doctrine and teaching and like attempt to conform myself to these statements. But like as I experience the world and interact with this, like I don't actually believe these things. Mm-hmm. This doesn't explain my experience of reality at all.
0: Uh-oh. yeah you know I'm, I'll jump back to baptism of culture yeah why do you back to that um, too. Um. because we also have like um, you have um, Aquinas who baptizes Aristotle um, yeah you you have uh, um, I guess you would say the same thing of Augustine baptizing Plato um, you have uh, you have this tendency of Christians to um Like, they're not. Of course, they're not literally baptizing Aristotle. He was long dead. Plato was long dead. Um, but okay. what what they've done is they've they've looked at um, their their philosophy, their perspective. You might you might even say their their theology or their spirituality. Um, and they're saying, what does this mean? If uh, um, if if this speaks into Christianity, and Christianity speaks into this, um, and and when they do that, um, they like they make huge waves that last for thousands of years. Augustine and Aquinas. Yeah. Well, uh, like- well Aquinas hasn't quite had thousands of years yet, but. Paul also says something about uh, baptism of the dead, mm-hmm.
1: which nobody has any idea how to deal with. <laughs> yeah, nobody has any idea what he's talking
0: about, but that's a curious I mean like that is something that those guys were doing, yeah um and but like and they
1: don't believe when they're doing it like they're not actually saying like we're baptizing these people, and now they're Christians, right. It's like, no, what they're saying is we're taking what they taught
0: but and like
1: this is a comment you made uh, last night when we were talking about something is that like they recognize that truth. Christians possess truth and any truth is ours Mm -hmm. and this is what they're saying when they're baptizing these ancient philosophers It's like, you know, here's truth. Yeah, that truth only comes from God What we're what we're doing when we're we're saying we're baptizing them I'll I'll phrase it that way just to kind of avoid possible controversies that might arise Mm -hmm. Um, When we're saying we're baptizing we're meaning this symbolically that we're taking what they said We're taking their ideas and pointing out like look here is divinely inspired truth mm-hmm. that these heathens possessed, and we're taking that, this sort of spirit that they represented,
0: and we're baptizing that, we're incorporating that into the faith, we're claiming it. Yeah, that idea that I was paraphrasing of of it's all our truth that that yeah. uh, comes from Justin Martyr, right. um, who was speaking about the pagan truth yeah. at the time. So that's exactly the context for that that yeah. comment that I made. Which is something like I would think of like the Protestant as being
1: firmly opposed to. Maybe I'm incorrect on that, but like this, this idea that you can take out. So like, I'll use an example. I was for a short time, a missionary in Thailand and worked with Buddhist monks and did quite a bit of studying on the beliefs of Thai Buddhism in the process. And like, I would read things from Protestant evangelists talking about Buddhism and, ta- and like frequently encountering things that's like, Here's what they believe in Buddhism, and here's why you shouldn't think that this is actually the same thing that we believe in Christianity. Mm -hmm. And like, it just frustrated me so much. It's like, how are you ever going to reach these people if you can't pull the truth out of their tradition? Yeah, right. If what you're doing is trying to destroy everything that they hold dear, trying to tear their entire world down, and then make them into an American Christian. Right. It's not going to work, and it hasn't worked. Like, evangelism in Thailand has just been like, almost absolutely unsuccessful. Like, mm-hmm. Thailand and Japan are two examples of, like, firmly Buddhist countries that they just don't care for Christianity.
0: Yeah, I I, uh, I talked with a guy who was a missionary in Japan who his approach was uh, to to make them into good Hebrews right. before you convert them to Christianity. Uh, like, impart on them a, a, a Jewish concept of sin. Right. And... Um, it's like, but that's not what the Christians did. No, it's not. It's like, like the Christians like never Paul, converted anybody to Judaism. Yeah, I mean, no, not like, that he not that he wanted to literally convert people to Judaism. Um, Paul goes and berates Peter for having that idea. Yeah, right, right. Um, yeah, it's like like no. What you have to do is is um, they they already have uh, something like the Hebrew faith. Right. I mean, Christianity comes in and transforms the 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 Hebrew faith, the Jewish faith. Um, Christianity came in and transformed pagan faiths all over Europe, which is why they were baptized so so immediately is because there's their whole system is Transformed by Christianity. Yeah, so like oh, yeah, and, and so that's like that's what you you know You got to do in Thailand or Japan is like right. you you already have a type of Old Testament here You first it's not gotta the go. Jewish Old Testament. You first it's a gotta Japanese go. Old Testament. Yeah,
1: like so if you're gonna if you're gonna Baptize Thailand you first got to go and baptize Gautama Buddha mm-hmm like, that's what you got to do. Yeah. And the people that have done that have been like, so there are like Catholic missionaries from like, I don't know, the 1500s. When was it? Yeah, in China. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Matteo Ricci. That did that. Um, did exactly that. Yeah, who who uh, donned the robes of a Confucian scholar. Right. Um, because he found there was so much in Confucianism that's in accord with Christianity. Um, and he was fairly successful, although, then, then other. Uh, I think Franciscan missionaries came in and, and they saw nothing but, uh, um, like, uh, demons. Yeah. In China. And um, so,
1: uh, did horrible things. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, that was, that was, I, I mean, mean like Christianity thing... basically totally died in China as yeah. a result of that. Well, the
1: same thing happens among the American Indians. Um, like French and Spanish missionaries among the Indians are very successful. Protestants are not. Yeah. Um, And, like, there's conflicts among the Protestants, like, especially on, like, the early frontier in the East, where, like, Protestants just go out and butcher Indians because they just see demonic things in what the Indians are doing. Mm
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Because, like, I'm not generally a big fan of the Jesuits, but that is something that the Jesuits seem to have done right, is go out and baptize the culture. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... So, like, I use the example of Paul um, on Mars Hill. It's like you would say in that sort of, like, slightly later Christian language that, like, they would say Paul is baptizing Greek paganism in that moment. Yeah. Like, he's taking what they're saying. It's like, here's your religion. Like, my interpretation, my way of rephrasing that whole story is, like, here's your religion. You're actually right. Most of what you believe is correct. Mm-hmm. Here's just what you're missing. Like, here's the thing that ties it all together. Yeah. It's like you have this recognition built into your faith that there's something missing that ties it all together. Yeah, e- even here's just... what it is.
0: This, like, uh, I can see you are a very religious people, something like that. Right. Like, he's giving them. them credit. Yeah, right. Um, and, and, yeah, like, acknowledging this... Their... Uh, um, Their... Uh, um, tribute they made to the unknown god is uh um it's right right it's like he doesn't have to destroy that and build a new tribute to to um to god the father um or to christ he has to uh he has to redirect that thing yeah
1: so there are stories like in the early Middle Ages of missionaries going like among the Slavs and the Germans and cutting down their altars. Mm-hmm. Or like their sacred oak trees or something like that. Yeah. But the important part of that is they don't just go straight into their into their camp. They don't just like depart Rome and go straight into the German camp and chop down their sacred altars. Like no, actually they first convert the people to where the people ask them to cut down the sacred altars. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, it's like, I would say, like, this Protestant approach is, the first thing we need to do is go into the camp and chop down the sacred oak tree. It was like, no, actually, that's the last thing that they did.
0: Yeah, right. Um, Yeah, because, I mean, like, basically, like, a a lot of that, a lot of that oak, (laughs) I mean, a lot of that culture can and should end up in Christianity uh, in, in like, a a redeemed form of it.
1: There are these... uh, there, there are quite a number of churches in, like I'll just use the example of Switzerland because I've been there and I've studied these buildings and know something of their history. I know this is also true all over Europe, that there are these remarkably old churches, like some of them, like second-century buildings. Like the buildings themselves aren't that old, but the foundation of the church on that location mm-hmm. goes back to that point. And like there's one place where there is what used to be a college of canons, which, for those of that you don't know what that is, is it's like a. Uh, a semi-monastic order of priests in medieval Europe. Yeah. Um, So, like, this college of canons is built on what was, in Roman times, the most important center of pagan cult worship in the region. And many of these, and, like, almost all of these old churches are built on places of pagan worship. So, like, sometimes, like, a Protestant would, would, uh, would criticize that fact. It's like, you're just... <clears throat> continuing this this paganism and you're just like making this accord with Belial um, I was like no that's not what they did like they knew what they were doing when they built the church on top of the pagan temple
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah um, it's like they were they weren't like it wasn't like the sign of we're oppressing and suppressing the pagan culture it's like no we are baptizing the pagan culture
0: yeah yeah. And like, uh, I mean, killing your father and mother is not like, yeah. uh, well, I mean, I guess Christ does have this comment about, uh, uh, y- you know, needing to hate your mother and father, but like, um, the, uh, the, the commandment is honor your father and mother. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. One other thing I did want to ask about, really quickly. This this is uh, too big of a conversation to be quick about, but you keep mentioning the Orthodox, and um, they they baptize babies, and since we're Anabaptists, <laughs> then uh, it would be worth at least mentioning this issue of um, of infant versus adult baptism. Um, and, and, again, you mentioned the Orthodox because of, of respect for the tradition, but obviously it was important for the Anabaptists that don't baptize babies. We need to be baptizing um, believers. Well, so, like, you're asking, like, why, how, how can I
1: reconcile the two? Yeah, right. So it goes or, back, sort of, I guess, a good way to frame it is go, go back to that conversation about uh, how Anabaptism is necessary in the context of when and where it was because Catholicism in their in their in their way of looking at things did not possess baptism period um, there was no there wasn't like there just wasn't this idea like this putting on of baptism and martyrdom for the everyday person like there's this this individual responsibility and individual conversion. So, you're
0: saying in an ideal world we should baptize babies, but yeah. it was historically necessary for the No, not exactly.
1: Um, but I'm saying, like, the how, I guess, in my mind, how exactly the sacrament, we'll say, is administered is not super important. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the Orthodox would recognize an Anabaptist baptism as valid. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we we probably wouldn't recognize theirs. <laughs> <laughs> no, probably <laughs> uh, not. Um, but um, I like I would say we have a bias, a certain bias that is contextual. Mm-hmm. Like we we we're, we're responding to something that is true in the West that maybe isn't so true in the East. So so like I mentioned, like it's important for me in my I guess way of reconcile and redeeming these apparently conflicting ideas is that both ideas very clearly existed like from the onset of christianity until the present yeah right and for most of christian history was no there was no dispute between them yeah so um orthodoxy is far bigger on um i guess like the idea of of baptizing of the nation Mm -hmm. and incorporating the believer into, like, this sort of cultural Christianity, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, Anabaptism places far more emphasis on the individual. And so, like, it makes sense that we would do things the way we we do
0: things and they would do things the way they do things. Well, Anabaptism also, like, has this, like, like, uh, utmost importance of the community. I mean, there is a sense in which the community is more important than the individual in Anabaptism, and yet... In, in baptism itself, you see like, no, what matters is the individual's commitment, the individual's decision, and the, uh, I mean, I guess I'll just go ahead and throw out the word responsibility since you mentioned that as well, like the, the responsibility of the Christian who yeah. is baptized. So, but the, but the most important point to
1: make is that once you scratch past like this outer layer of, of teaching and language on the surface... I would say that we in the Orthodox believe in practice precisely the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we just call them different things. So, like we actually do administer Orthodox baptism of babies. We just don't call it baptism. Yeah. Like we like, we'll quote all of the same verses, put the exact same significance and meaning, and exact same teaching into it. The exact same symbols into it. Yeah. Um, like, um, we just we just call it something different. Right. And then the Orthodox, I would say do exactly what we do that we call baptism they just call it something different um just there's just a difference in the language and like there's a sense in which we're both like we're both correct that we're both right <coughs> like i would say like they're both they're both baptism but i would definitely be inclined to think that like for me as the individual my baptism as an adult means a lot more to me personally yeah. than if I were baptized as a baby. Right. But like you mentioned, you attend somebody else's baptism and it has meaning to you personally. Yeah. So like the Orthodox, their baptism means a lot to them, mm-hmm. but they experience it through the baptism of others. Yeah. <clears throat> so it's like I can recognize in that something that I can agree with.
0: Yeah. Something that like. I can consider you to be true, faithful Christians. Now, one thing also, uh, um, the uh, an Orthodox or a Catholic or someone who who baptizes infants um, connects their baptism to circumcision right. in the Old Testament, which is this way of of uh, um, like inducting the the new baby into the, into the cultural community. Christianity, yeah. yeah, into the community. Um, so, like, we do the same thing. What what we do with baptism is instead um, an initiation ritual, right? Um, you, I mean, you can't you can't have an initiation ritual on a baby because uh, even like this idea of baptism as symbol is like uh, if if that's a symbol for the individual, then it's it's a symbol that brings them through initiation. Um, so, uh, in, in an initiation ritual, you also are enacting a symbol. And what that symbol does is it transforms a boy into a man, and it's no joke. I mean, it's it's not just like a piece of theology, but it, it has a like a profound effect on on the initiate. Um, they they emerge uh, basically as a different person. I mean, like they they are an adult. They view themselves as an adult. They're the other people in the community view them as an adult. So everything in their world is literally different because of this uh, ritual or this symbol that they've they've enacted so that's sort of uh, sort of what an adult baptism is as well instead of a circumcision it's an initiation ritual and when you emerge on the other side of it you are a different person and and you view yourself as a different person and everyone in the community views you as a different person yeah okay well we'll try to wrap this up um, I guess I'll also just ask um, what's what's the uh, uh, the significance of the conversation for like a, a person's life because we don't just want to <coughs> be like you know intellectual. Um, th- there is none. <laughs> no.
1: Um, well, like I guess it gets you to think about the symbol and the meaning of the things that you do. Um, thinking about your approach. Well, like especially like this approach to. I guess the. I mean, I I guess. For me personally, like, it'll mean different things to different people depending on where they're at and where they're not at. But, like, for me personally, like, the big thing of meaning is, like, this idea of, uh, you know, baptizing the nations. Not meaning going out and picking out individuals and forcing them or pressuring them <coughs> into converting mm-hmm. to your faith. But, like, going out and redeeming truth out of their culture.
0: <coughs> Being a witness to, to, to truth, um... Yeah, our, our nation, I mean, to get practical, um, our, our nation needs that type of a baptism. Yeah, so um, like... It, it doesn't need people to, like, go out and, and tell everybody to convert yeah, and become you, Christians. Well, what a what better it way needs, of putting that. What it needs is for for Christianity <laughs> to actually tackle what is happening in the culture and, and show how it points to Christ. Yeah, so like a better way of putting that is don't go out and tell the
1: Marxists or the feminists or the... Uh, Muslims or (coughs) erroneous sect of Christianity in your view all the ways that they're wrong Mm -hmm. in fact go out and find all the ways that they're actually right Mm -hmm. and redeem that like recognize that everything out there like this is what the early Christians recognized that every belief system out there (laughs) is full of truth and that it's our truth as Christians Mm -hmm. and that it's our responsibility to go out there and claim that truth and redeem it
0: yeah if you it the alternative is you react against it and you attack it. Yeah. And that means you are attacking you are attacking the truth that is in that thing and you are distancing yourself from it. So like if, if you don't baptize the nation that you're living in Well so then, like we have the then, symbol then of like you, you're poisoning it, the well. Yeah, well right, right. You're you're hurting yourself. Um, you're making your own faith your like the Christian faith that's around you yeah. is weaker. Because you're pushing away something that actually is true.
1: Yeah. So, like, in in an effort to get at your enemies and to undermine them, you're you're poisoning the source of your own vitality. Mm -hmm. So, like, I use this example of like visiting this castle in Switzerland, not very far from where our ancestors were from, where, like, like most castles, it was also a prison and a place of execution. here, one of the ways in which they executed some of the Anabaptists, so like normal criminals, they would hang them or behead them. Mm-hmm. But heretics always had special executions here for them. Yeah, it was usually either burning or drowning. Mm-hmm. In this case, um, what they would do is uh, they drowned the Anabaptists in the well in the castle. And like I just like was talking to you about, this is that that's so bizarre. <coughs> Why would you take these people and throw them into the source of of, of your water? Like where you drink from? Why would yeah. you drown them in that? Right. That just seems just so obviously abhorrent. Uh, but it's like there was this meaning outside of their own control that was
0: exerting itself on them, because like symbolically, that's well, this, what they were doing: is they were poisoning their own wells. Yeah, poisoning your own, your poisoning yourself. And uh, um, it's like you you say this this kind of symbol that emerges uh, by accident that they didn't intend, but but um, like, hatred of your enemy is hatred of yourself. Right. Um, like, seeking to destroy your enemy is seeking to destroy yourself.
1: Which is interesting, because like one of the ways in which Byrne combated the Anabaptists was actually to attempt to make themselves more like the Anabaptists.
0: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Well um, I will kind of wrap it up with that so I, I did want to also touch on that idea of, of perpetual baptism again. Right. It's like when we're talking about the ritual of baptism, we're not talking about like something that you did 20 years ago we're talking about um, we're talking about something that happens continually within you and um, like although although I'll just use the initiation again right now although your initiation is past um, that that death of self, and new life in Christ is something that that is continual. So I want to touch on that idea again, but I think that that idea that you touched on um, oh, yeah, is is but, a great one to close on as and well. And like, also
1: add to that, like tying into like your question about how do you, how can you tolerate infant baptism as a believer in adult baptism? And like <clears throat> what I would end was like the admonition, like don't squabble about things that are actually beyond your understanding.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah,
1: so we, have the early, we have the precedent from the very earliest age of the church that they didn't.
0: Yeah. So I guess, uh, I guess the thing is uh, to close. Continually baptize yourself and go and baptize the nations. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening and engaging. The best and pretty much the only ways to support this podcast are to subscribe and think of a friend who might enjoy this conversation and share it. Please join us again for another walk in the woods, another conversation, and another journey in the sacred life.